Should any morals come between your species and the struggle against extinction? Or to put it another way, do any morals come between your species and that fight against the end? It's a pretty grim question and it's exactly the one that our story for this episode is concerned with. It's a short story by Liu Cixin. I'm honestly very excited that we finally got to this guy. He was one of the authors that got me into kind of the question surrounding reading translated Chinese fiction. We'll do the plugs before we get to the interview with our guest, um, a fellow Dundonian, just like me. So there's a pretty key plug I forgot in the last two episodes. It's that I've made a Facebook page and a Facebook group for the podcast. I'm not sure if they'll be a big hit or not, but for any of you guys who like to keep up or keep a pace with things, the Facebook page is there for you. If you want to talk to other fans of the show, I think the group is a good place where that could potentially happen, where listeners could talk to each other without me coming in the middle. But we'll, we'll just see if it's, um, if it's used or not. Doesn't matter if it's not, but it's there. We'll see, we'll see where it goes. Uh, the other plugs, of course, if you want to support the show, financially, that is, then there's two places to do that. There's Patreon, where you get access to bonus content, and I really should make some more soon. Or for a one-off contribution, there's Buy Me A Coffee. Links to both of those in the show notes. And to contact me or give feedback to the show, uh, best places for that are Instagram, at Trichafic. That's T-R-C-H-F-I-C, by the way. And I'm on Twitter as well, where I mostly tweet about the show, and that's at Angus Likes Words. The Facebook group as well, though, would be a good place for that, since we've got it. Anyway, enough waffle. Let us proceed with the interview. So I'm on the show with Adam McMurchie. He's a Da Yingxiong, uh, yeah, Da Yingxiong, a Patreon supporter of the show. That is a big hero. And he's also a huge fan of Chinese science fiction. So a perfect guest for our ongoing sci-fi season. And he's come on this episode to talk about another big hero, uh, the elephant in the room, as it were, of Chinese sci-fi. I say elephant in the room because we've not, we've talked about him a lot in this sci-fi season. But he's finally getting an episode. It's Dalio, Liu Cixin, author of, uh, well, best known for The Three-Body Problem and arguably the godfather of the new wave of Chinese sci-fi. So we're not doing Three-Body for this episode. I think that's been done on plenty other podcasts. We're doing his short story, Devourer, which is one of the short stories that's uh, collected in The Wandering Earth, his uh, collection of short stories, which you can get in English from Tor in the US and everywhere else in English, it's Head of Zeus. Uh, before we go into talking about the story, though, let's talk a wee bit about you, Adam. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, where to start? Um, I think maybe we'll start how we sort of came across each other. So yeah. I'm uh, a bit of a, a mad sci-fi Chinese uh, sci-fi fan. And um, I came across, I think I came across your podcast while I was on the uh, the London Chinese sci-fi group, which... Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, I strongly recommend checking out for anyone in London. They do sort of meetups, and um, your sort of first podcast I came across was the Waste Tide, which was when as soon as I listened to that, I found it like really, really engrossing. Um, and from my point of view, it, it's so hard to find anybody with a sort of strong. Uh, interest in Chinese science fiction um, and so really coming across your pod podcast I found it quite super niche and um, mm. that's kind of, that's kind of like what 
drove me to you. Then I sort of started reaching out to you, and we just kind of took it from there. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah, I guess um, for me, my background really is um, at the moment I'm sort of the uh, head of DevOps and environment. Um, I'm also an AI specialist, and um, I've worked quite frequently in China. So I'm I'm in China every single year about uh, three or four times. Um, mm. I, I also kind of speak fluent Chinese and I'll be flying out again um, in a couple of weeks to do a few uh, sessions on a sort of AI forum. So I guess from that sort of mixed in, you know, sort of tech side and sort of background in physics, that that really sort of brought me into the sort of sci-fi side of things. And then obviously working in sort of China, sort of these two naturally came together. Um, So really from my, I guess my point of view, I kind of see these two things as, as sort of a, a great symbiosis for mm. sort of um, generation today. If you if you go to China now, compared to say ten or fifteen years ago, the mm. attitude the attitudes towards technology and science fiction in general are are hugely positive. I mean, they have um, definitely improved, um, and, and I would say even in contrast to to the Western attitudes to technology and, and science fiction in general, it's much more positive. It's more outlooking and uh, kind of um, with sort of uh, anticipation for what's around the corner. Whereas I think we're a little bit more skeptical now, a little bit more dark. So um, yeah, I guess mm. that's kind of how my background sort of shaped into, into the sort of Chinese, uh, Chinese science fiction scene. Mm. I think it's worth mentioning we're both Dundonian, right? Yeah, that was a <laughs> that was a bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm being based in London, and I I found it quite um I guess it was uh, quite refreshing to get a taste of Scotland while being here and traveling the world, and uh, especially since it's one of my my sort of deep loves. So I wonder if there's something to do with uh, Dundee and science fiction in general. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, I think when you're talking <laughs> about China, Dundee is a good context to have because it so in, involved in first the industrial revolution and colonialism and then later the, the movement of into the far east editors note uh, the line glitched here i was just saying that after the industrial revolution and uh, the kind of shift to globalization dundee experienced all its factories moving away um to the far east and i guess we'd also had a colonial aspect to our city but it was through ties to uh, East Bengal and India. Not so much China, but still. It's a handy context, I think, for when, when you're thinking about these things. Uh, that's come up a couple, in a couple of episodes, especially in this sci-fi season. But apart from that, like, I, I'm not sure what else yeah, sci-fi-ish th- there is about Dundee. There's the video games, uh, Rockstar and whatnot, and University of Aberdeen. I suppose that has some, some of its little modern fingers in the sci-fi pie. But I suppose it's other bits of Scotland that are more associated with literature, unless it's William McGonagall, the worst poet who ever lived. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's something to do with the general scene. Um, so um, you're right, the Chinese-Dundee connection's quite tight. Um, also, the University of Hunan, uh, sorry, Wuhan and Dundee have a kind of like a partnership and a joint sister uh, university exchange program, which is kind of how Interesting. I... Yeah, it's kind of how I came to sort of uh, learn Mandarin fluently and uh, work in China. And and there was a lot of outreach programs um, back then. 
I was just doing a physics course um, over 10 years ago mm. and um, uh, yeah and so it was it was very different and there was competitions and awards to kind of go and uh, do a summer in China um, sort of like mm. an intern- internship but from the sci-fi point of view I wonder if it's just because Dundee's quite dark. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say when you were bigging up the uni, Dundee has, I think the things Dundee has going for it are very good. There's a limited number of them, but one of them is the uni. It's a very, it's a cool uni. And what you're saying about the outreach programs and the opportunities for connections with China uh, don't surprise me. Um, so we should probably stop boring our listeners talking about our hometown, uh, although there might be a minority who are uh, captivated. Um, I'd like to ask you about your membership of the Chinese sci-fi fandom because although you're saying we're hard to find I think we're maybe a little bit like the stars in the universe there's a lot of us we're just quite well outside of China we're quite spread out anyway waffling aside um how do you consume most of the Chinese sci-fi that you read because I know it's quite different from how I've read it which is mostly for the most part being in print on books in books in English yeah, so I mean, the, the there is you are right. I mean, there's a lot of um, different resources um, where I can kind of get access to some of the more older, hard to get Chinese sci-fi. Um, fortunately, because of sort of legends like Ken Liu, who have produced a lot of hard book in English, you know, such as the um, the Wandering Earth series and and things like that. That that has been really useful. But um, mm. additionally, I read um, there's a lot of online, um, shall we say, free um sites which which have um, all of Leo Zixian's material um especially mm. in Mandarin so when you kind of go on Baidu and you just sort of Baidu one of his books it's one of the first uh, sort of two or three hits and you kind of like the full transcripts online and um, personally I do yeah. prefer, personally I do prefer to pay but um I know that in both English and Chinese these uh versions can be they're they're very easy to access uh, some of them are transcribed officially so fortunately mm. Fortunately, The Devourer, um, which we're talking about, is um, free to view online and it's um, it's officially free to view online. But yeah. um, a lot of them are not. And I know from sort of talking with colleagues, um, both in China and the UK, there's kind of mixed uh, feelings. Um, most of us want to pay and support the authors, but um, I don't know the full sort of underground background reason for um it becoming so easy to publish these online because I don't think all of them are sort of authorized and supported by the author. Um, mm. Other than that, I mean, I generally order from Taobao. So whenever I'm in China, I'll order these sort of hard copies and um, take them back home in the suitcase. Mm. And we should say uh, for any listeners who haven't heard of Taobao, it's kind of like China's Amazon. It's, it's the go-to for your online shopping. It's, it's interesting that you do that. My experience of these online versions, un- unlicensed online versions of Chinese books has been, it's been stuff through this podcast, basically, where I'm trying to find so some nugget or other on the Chinese language internet I couldn't find in the English language internet. So I'll stick a novel's Chinese name, a Chinese novel's Chinese name into either Baidu or Google. And then, yeah, I found in the first page of search results, you can find a chapter by chapter web text version of lots of books. I think I've I've seen uh, Wang Shuo's Please Don't Call Me uh, Human and Murong Shuo Sun's Leave Me Alone. I think they were both right there. 
probably not legal in a very simple text format. That does seem to be quite popular where um, people will upload just like, um, it's almost like a uh, parsing, like a screen scraping into a dot text mm. file. Um, but personally, I try to avoid that because it is good to sort of have the quality and the format um, of, of, a, of a reading. Definitely improves your uh, improves your reading experience for sure. Um, I think maybe your goal one day might be to get an IP rights, intellectual property rights uh, expert on the show, but they would need to find me first. I don't know where I'd find them. So we should probably get on and talk about the story itself. But before we do, is there anything I've not mentioned about yourself or your things you read or your work that you'd like to mention before we continue? No, I kind of think that's captured most of it. I mean, really, from my point of view, is just the sort of uh, when we get into the book with Leo Zishin, um I really sort of appreciate his attention to detail. Um, mm. You know, especially uh, coming from a highly sort of technical background myself, um, a lot of the stuff he's published seems to be quite ahead of its day. So I'd, I'd really just sort of say from my background, I guess if you're into tech or if you're into China, then you should definitely give Leo Zishin's, uh material um, a go if you haven't already. Mm. I remember um, in just about any little author mini bio of his that you read, he mentions that uh, his first big job before becoming a full-time author was working in a power plant in Shanxi province, I think doing coding. But he's one of those hard sci-fi writers with the knowledge and experience to back up what he's writing. I, th I Actually, I think, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think he still actually works at that power plant. Ah, right. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure if he's like full time now, but um, last I was reading, somebody was mentioning that they think he still works there. Hmm, that's funny. Uh, there's a weird factoid, not about sci-fi, but um, do you know the author Cormac McCarthy? Ah, uh, afraid I've not heard of him. Uh, he's a uh, Blood Meridian, uh, No Country for Old Men. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. That guy, The Road, yes, okay. as well. Um, so before he did The Road, there wasn't a hint of anything sci-fi-ish in his stuff. Uh, but um, uh, there's a radio show an American NPR radio episode where he was talking about science with, of all people, Werner Herzog and Lawrence Krauss. And he was mentioning he goes to some physics institute every week or every month or something and does work in studies or discussions involving physics. So I guess it's not just uh, sci-fi writers who do this stuff, although Cormac is maybe a weird case. Uh, anyway, uh, let's charge ahead. I think before we um, get on to talk about the story, there's a couple points worth mentioning about the Wandering Earth uh, English language collection of Liu Cixin's stories. So first of all, it's not a collection of disparate stories from lots of different Chinese texts. It's kind of just an English translation of an already, of a, of a Liu Cixin collection that already exists in Chinese, which makes it different from Invisible Planets or Broken Stars or some other collections of Chinese writer stories in English where they've all been pieced together. Uh, that's one point. The other point is its stories have lots of different translators. Um, they may be the translations have maybe been pieced together, although the collection is in English version. And the credit inside the book for all these different translators is collective. So it doesn't specify who translated which story. So therefore, with the, with only the book, like as I had, with no research, you can't know which translator did which story. But Adam, you uh, you got on the case and you did some detective work about Devourer's translator, didn't you? 
Yeah, so um, I did a little bit of digging, uh, sort of cross digging across the sort of Chinese uh, uh, websites and the American ones. Um, I also found out that the actual some of these individual short stories exist on um, uh, on the Amazon Audible, but mm. um, but some of them have now been removed, and the the Kindle books have also been removed, which is quite weird. But the the information sort of remained behind, and that kind of. Mm-hmm left um allowed me to figure out who was who translated what i was then able to sort of confirm that on the sort of the chinese pages but um there's actually i think there's about five uh, translators in general so there's there's mm. ken ken leo which is one of the most uh, popular and famous uh translators of giant science fiction into english and then there's some other people sort of elizabeth hanlon zach kaluza adam lanfer and holger nam and holger's the one that actually translated um this um devourer story um mm. yeah so so yeah um the, the the information sort of out there um i think maybe potentially what had happened were these books were originally translated as standalone and then mm-hmm. possibly at some point later they were brought together into a collection but um, i can't be sure on that it sounds like that's exactly what happened what has happened and it brings up ip and rights again because it sounds like the when this collection was published those old single editions had to be taken down because the way the way the rights deal must have happened um did you find anything out about holger this this translator or do we just know his name he's a bit of a dark horse i'm afraid there's just yeah. really his name um there was i think he had translated um multiple chinese stories before but this is his first Zishin story i haven't dug into his other ones just yet he doesn't so there's a lot of famous translators out there such as ken leo who market and brand themselves um quite openly but um mm. so far haven't found much on on holger nam okay interesting um i think it's it's worth mentioning ken leo obviously i've mentioned him on every one of these sci-fi season episodes because although he's kind of the paired translator with a lot of them a lot of the chinese sci-fi writers who've been in in translation in english i think ken Leo's most commonly associated with leo Cixin, and i think it helps that they've both to some extent, it maybe helps that they've both got the family name Leo, but it's in a way it's a little bit significant that here we have a Leo Sishin story that's not a Ken Leo story. And the the book, although I'm I suppose Ken Leo was probably at least in some way responsible for this book getting out there, this is not a Ken Leo book per se. This is just a Leo Sishin book. But yeah, so I suspect that we've got quite a lot of listeners who have who have maybe read wandering earth who are fans of three body invisible planets and so on but i'm also willing to bet we've got quite a lot of listeners who've not read devourer or all the stories in the wandering earth um so with that in mind adam do you think you could give us a little bit of a plot outline or plot summary and i think it's okay to do spoilers so if you don't want spoilers guys you'll have to skip ahead or maybe just wait until you've read the story. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll try to kind of give a little bit of a, a summary without spoiling too too much of the story. Um, okay. I, I guess the reason why we picked this was, was simply because I think this story is kind of jam-packed with ideas and content. There really is a sort of a lot to talk about. Um, it, it kind of, it, it's set in the sort of near future Earth where um, there's a sort of like a, um, 
there's a, a group of, uh, sort of soldiers, space soldiers, and their job is to kind of go on asteroid missions and um, if they find anything that's sort of near Earth collisions to sort of detonate bombs and deflect them. And and during this process, um, they encounter a sort of a, a giant crystal um, and, and the sort of crystal sort of interacts with them and they and they find out it's actually um uh, uh, fleeing from um its home world that had been invaded by this ship which is called the devourer mm. and um so the story is based upon how the earth essentially has um a hundred years to prepare for the arrival of the devourer so if, if you've read the three body problem there's probably some um pangs of similarity there already um mm-hmm. And so they, they essentially the story revolves around um, three main protagonists. Um, one, which is the emissary of this uh, Devourer ship called Fangs. The other is the uh, the human uh, main character um, referred to as the captain, um, later on referred to as the marshal. And these, uh, this girl, which is represented in the crystal, um, uh, in, in the Chinese book, she's called the girl from Iridani. Um, I think she's also called that in the English book, but there's, there's a slight variation on the theme. Um mm. And, and so, yeah, so this book is all about how Earth is dealing with this sort of impending doom, the sort of negotiations uh, between um, the emissary fangs and the, the humans. Um, but it's really, I guess, the the key meat of the story is um, just how much um, jam-packed different analogies that are used. So there's um, a lot of different analogies which we can dig into later with um, and the use of um, Leo Zishin's sort of uh, universal worldview. Things such as this um, uh, uh, sort of term of, of vulgarity, which is is actually really, really interesting. And um, um, there's a little bit of sort of uh, gender, uh, um, sort of, I, I guess, maybe gender philosophy injected into the into the story a little bit, as well as yep. some of, of your sort of traditional hard, uh, hard sci-fi grounding. So I think these things all come together to make the story so interesting. And it should be mentioned that the story is actually quite short. So I think the there's eight chapters. Um, it's about 46 pages um, in English. Um, a few of our bits about the story is um, it was first published in 2002, but it's actually been republished several times. And I think that's a sign of generally how good a novel or a, or a book might be is if it's if there's been so much work on it um, over the mm-hmm. past. Um, and, and Goodreads, actually. So so one of the I always use Goodreads as a sort of a, a sort of a milestone marker for how good a story is and, and it's got 4.5 out of 5 from around about 400 ratings so 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 that yeah good. so yeah the, the, the story is is grand in scale but um focuses quite heavily on i guess metaphors and analogy mm. yep i think that's a good summary uh, you've avoided quite a lot of the spoilery plot points which i think might have to come up when we get to like more point-to-point discussion so uh but we've spoiled uh, pretty much every other story on the podcast before so no big deal so now that you've kind of set us up for this discussion uh, i know that you've done quite a lot of preparation yourself and you've got you told me you've got quite a lot of angles that we could look at it from so let's go off your notes uh rather than mine uh what kind of things do you see you, you said that devourer is pretty jam-packed with stuff so what kind of stuff do you think is jam-packed in there and What's the first thing we could talk about? 
Sure. Okay. So there's a let's start with this um the uh, introduction of a sort of a, a fourth party, right? So we have we know that there's initially three parties. So there's this race, the devourers. There's mm-hmm. the uh the people from Eridani, the girl from Eridani, and the humans. Now mm-hmm. there's a there's a fourth party which are introduced, um, the the ant. Now the reason why this is actually quite important is um if, if you read this book um you'll you'll find some things which don't seem to quite make sense and the reason mm. is is because it's actually and I, and I was actually shocked to find out that it's it's actually a kind of a loose sequel to a book that Leo Zishin wrote much earlier called of ants and dinosaurs um fortunately uh, that hadn't been translated but this is the one of the stories that Holger has actually translated and will be will be released later on um next year um mm. so so anyway so there's a nice little connection to uh, sort of a, an extra book, which I strong I do think works really well if you read this one first and then and then wait um, for the English version because um, mm-hmm. I've read a Chinese version um, and it, it they tie in together. So there's no I think you could read them in either order. But but okay, so mm-hmm. digging into this sort of idea, there's a, there's a really nice uh, part where. Um, essentially, the humans are, are are begging fangs, so the emissary fangs, to to essentially bear them, and they try to use a lot of sort of emotional um, steering. So they, they they invite him to an archaeological dig, and mm-hmm. um, they they I think this dig is of a, an old civilization, potentially one of the oldest human civilizations. And it's they, in Africa somewhere, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, and 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 they give they give fangs. Um, sort of an equivalent of a of a Carl Sagan box but it's a, it's a book I think and <laughs> yeah. essentially they're trying to show him all of the wonders of earth and um Fang's replies with uh, some really really um profound um profound statements so first of all he kind of he, he he retorts which is essentially I care not for your hole nor for your hole in a hole um and 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 which the, the humans are quite startled by that and and they sort of respond eventually after failing all all avenues to convince him to, to show mercy they, they come along something along the lines of like how could you do such a thing do you know do you not do you not have any morals now mm-hmm. what what thanks does is he proceeds to sift through the debris of this archaeological dig um bear in mind he's about 30 foot so uh, he's, he's a massive lizard <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's a massive lizard right exactly and he's exactly. already eaten one of the un representatives exactly yeah yeah and, and so yeah i should have really given that so so he, <laughs> he's he's um sifting through this debris and um the humans are baffled by what he's doing and he slowly i think he pulls out some mounds of, of dirt onto the book and and proceeds to talk about the story of a, of a great civilization and that the civilization had endured uh, thousands of years of, of turmoil and, and they, their queen had travelled um, a vast distance and they had technology and they had stored um, information and in, in what he uses, as I think he states, as ovioid capsules. I'm, I'm assuming he means eggs. And yeah. um, essentially what he's actually talking about is ants. And um, he, he's inferring, reading this story, you wouldn't know if he really does mean that these ants are a super advanced civilization or if he's just using a metaphor to describe, you know, 
that it is another another form of life which we just destroyed to to, yep. to dig this hole. And I think the way he puts it, he finishes off with this statement, which is he says, um, "We have a ve- we have a very many things to talk about, but let us not talk about morals in the universe. Such a thing is meaningless." Um, or, or in the universe, such things are meaningless um, to, I think, gobsmacked silence. And I kind of, the story, I think that story is a chapter in itself where he kind of really meticulously describes in detail this uh, ant civilization. And I think the point that, you know, there's a lot of point, I, I guess, the author's trying to get across. Mm. One of them potentially is, is you know, it, it, it's all from a point of view and perspective, right? Where we don't see us as destroying these ants as being an act of, um, you know, an act of, of, of vulgar. An immoral act or yeah. a vulgar act, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so so I remember the first time I, I kind of came across that. I was, I was quite gobsmacked myself because mm. it was not what I expected. Um, so I think that was the sort of first part, um, which is yeah. kind of, worth covering and and so um what would the next part um which for me was sorry i have a couple a couple of replies to that um before we before we go to the next point um yeah so one of the a thing i just remembered actually this leads genre fiction symposium i've been mentioning in every episode there was a really interesting thing one of the attendees uh nick stember uh a, a translator and kind of a knowledgeable sinologist himself uh, when we were talking about genre fiction he talked about this study that had been done where these ais were given uh, huge corpuses of text um genre by genre and it was the ais were asked to analyze to look for patterns in each genre of the text they were given and um the two examples because we were looking at sci-fi and crime two things which are getting published a lot from chinese to english and the the corpus analyzer ai spotted some things in each genre that humans might not spot as easily because of the different perspectives uh, AI brains and our brains have. So for um, crime and detective stories, the AI noticed that there's a lot of descriptions of the interiors of rooms. But for sci-fi, the AI spotted that there were lots of adjectives and descriptions of scale. So very, very small things, very, very big things. And I think that AI finding matches exactly Fang's story about the ants and the humans and then how the scale doesn't necessarily affect anything you know, the scale is it just adds to the kind of irrelevance of morals into the equation so that's one point uh what was the other one yeah so the, the gobsmacking moment where fangs kind of gives this very grim dark analysis of how you should conduct yourself with other civilizations in the galaxy i feel like the three body problem has that moment too and it's not I think it's not aliens who come up with this. It's a human hero, Loa G, where he comes up with a dark forest theory, which I won't describe to avoid spoilers, but it's a very bleak, it's a really bleak and certain description of how civilizations in the universe behave in a kind of kill or be killed way. And I think at least when I was reading this story and that, it was a similar effect on me. I was just like, oh God, that's grim. And I guess the other connection with three body here is ants. Because I think I think it's Dark Forest where there's a little ants point. There's a couple of ants yeah. point of view moments. I think that's Dark Forest, the second book. It's right so on it's, the opening chapter. <laughs> right, and does the ant come back at the end, or is it just the start? 
I think it's at both the end and the start. I can't remember, but in the start, I think the idea is is the ant is. It talks about how the ant's simple neural network is trying to traverse uh, an area. It's making out some numbers or letters, and uh, at that time, there's a conversation where Lodzi's um, introduced to the realities of the dark forest, and and I think the the theme of that is is only the ant and Lodzi witness that. And then at the end, kind of the same thing again, potentially. Um, but yeah, I think there is definitely a, a nice connection there between the two. I, I guess um, there's a few things you kind of trigger my thoughts when you say that. Um, one being that the scale analogy, I, I think that um, also is present in the in the prequel as well. And it actually, it, it comes to directly affect um, the psychology of the uh, the different scale of of of, of, uh, of species, but but I guess it you, you I'll not give too much of away, but the, the prequel does involve ants and it does involve dinosaurs. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shock horror. Um, especially given that it's in the title of the name. <laughs> um, but but yes. The, there is, I think you're right. There is something about scale in science fiction. Um, I, actually, I think this kind of ties in nicely to Liu Zixin's, um I In China, he's always tagged with this uh, term of hard SF, so mm. hard sci- science fiction. And, and I think one of the definitions is if if you read the sort of Chinese interpretation is is like grandiose in scale or mm. or super micro in scale and um yeah I think I think Liu Zixin really tries to sort of push that um in, in his interpretations of his stories. Yeah, he's a hard sci-fi writer who knows he's a hard sci-fi writer and guns it. I think, and if if we're talking about scale and the grandiosity. Um, I think even though if you start talking about hard and soft, you still haven't escaped scale because the scale of the soft sci-fi stories tends to be smaller. We've kind of started to talk about links or connections between Devourer and Three-Body. And my theory is that Devourer might have been a bit of a proto-Three-Body story, like a first draft in a way. Um, and I, I think you said you were going to look into like the timings of when each was written to see if that confirm or would help confirm my theory did did you have a go at that yeah so so it looks it looks very okay so there's i was there's there's about three or four stories which seem to come around about the year 2002 2003 from Liu Zixin and um this is one of them and i think the three body problem was released in 2008 um in china if i I remember correctly Mm -hmm. um and and so there's definitely um, common themes. In fact, if you read one of the uh, Ken Leo's, I, I can't remember which one of these uh, collections, there's actually a retelling of one of the three body stories, a uh, three problem, sorry, three body problem stories that um, about the human computers in a, in a completely different way. And mm. so I think what Leo Zissing does is he builds up um, a repertoire of ideas and t- and test them out in small stories and i think he stitched them all together in the three body problem which is potentially why it was so successful because it had actually been um an evolution and uh, an ac- a- accumulation of all his different successful works um another one would be mm-hmm. the, the mountain so i think which is also in the wandering earth collection although i've totally forgotten the plot 
<laughs> well, I'll not give that one away. We'll try not to detour too much. But there's mm. um, so the mountain is is a beautiful piece about um, uh, a group of sort of uh, digital solid state life forms and and what makes uh, so so there's a connection there on the sort of physics and the the grandiose scale side of things. And I think the devourer really captures this uh, dark uh, outlook on on the universe. And there's a few more stories that um, short stories which also have uh, separate segments from the three body problem so they all stitch to come uh, stitch together quite nicely and they all predate the um, three body problem by about five years so I'm mm. guess I'm guessing there's definitely a, a sort of a tie-in there um, I'm wondering and there's a couple of other things I think really worth talking about so there's this translation that's used called suye um which I've checked with my other Chinese colleagues who aren't familiar with the word, and um, right. I think, and, and so I found this quite interesting. So, so if you stick it in Google Translator, it comes out across as a uh, rough, and that not the way I've um, used the word in context before. So the the term yeah is is much more uh, common in this idea of yeah man, which comes across as brutal or uncivilized. So you might say like yeah man, mm-hmm. which means and, uh, and where where is uh, Su Ye used in the story? Right. So so he comes out there's a there's a part where the the, the humans are uh, they've given up been given a last chance to sort of flee to the moon and let a few of them live on the moon and but the dinosaurs have said it's up to you to sort out your stuff and you have to steer it out mm. of the way. And so what they do yes, is we should say sorry uh, there's a twist that uh, the big lizard finds <laughs> yeah. is actually He's an ancestor of the dinosaurs who left Earth. Kind of a, it's kind of a, feels like a goofy twist, but in a way, it fits the kind of species survival view that Cision has. But yeah, that's just a disclaimer to explain why we've been talking about ants and dinosaurs and why you refer to them as dinosaurs there. But we don't find right. that out until late in the story. Right, exactly, and and um, actually, I guess this just shows goes to show um, just how jam packed story is. It's it's exactly. so hard to to keep um, consistent when in, in review. But essentially, uh, he's commenting on this uh, uh, process that the humans are doing to steer this moon out of the way by using. Uh, layered nuclear weapons and he says um in english i think he comes out with something along the lines of he says um you little you little worms ha 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 what a wonderful idea you you worms have managed to dream up i love it he then proceeds to talk about um vulgar is um he says you are truly vulgar little worms and vulgarity is the highest form of beauty and so he he kind of illustrates that the universe is actually vulgar in in essence um Mm -hmm. Um, and so this term vulgar is used quite a lot, and um, so they use the term suye. Um, normally, it would we would use the word yeman or um, yemanian, but in this case, this suye is is seems to be quite more appropriate. So I think this is an example of Liu Zixin kind of um, being a little bit of a wordsmith and coming up mm. with a, a new way to to generate um, imagery. And um, so, yeah, and he sort of, uh, the story sort of proceeds where he kind of talks about, um, and it, this gets quite controversial, but um, he sort of, the, the, the girl from Iridani is actually as part of this conversation and she's kind mm. of disgusted. And, um, and she retorts something along the lines of like, um, I think in the Chinese version, she says, 
that's lunacy. How could the universe be vulgar? And um, Fangs replies mm. with something along the lines of, um, "Is consider the sun as a as a, a, a raging burning furnace in the depths of the cold abyss. How is that not vulgar?" He then. Mm-hmm. He then proceeds to, to, to come out with something which I found quite shocking. And he it, it's very kind of a bit of a surprise, but he comes out with, do you understand that the universe is masculine? And he says, feminist civilizations like yours are fragile. Well, fem- feminine, we should oh, say. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. That's right. It's a fact. Yeah. I'm probably typing too fast. Um <laughs> but yes, feminine civilizations like yours are fragile, fine and delicate, a sickly abnormality in the tiny course of the in the tiny corner of the universe. And that's that. Um in in Chinese he uses the term nuanxi, but when he talks about masculinity, he actually uses a, a different form and uses a xiongxing ah. da, more like um it, it, it's I guess it's a little bit more of a brutal term. But but what, is that like I, warrior or yeah well i think so yeah so i think it's like the yeah exactly and is that xiong from ying xiong hero um good or question I'm, I'm thinking about it no i think it's more like a male um okay. so um i'm actually typing it in now um, right. okay no it is it's the same one it is the ah, ah so, right. I did, so yeah the the this it is the exact same but they're they're not parallel words, is your point? So Nuren being woman for the yeah. quote unquote feminine civilizations, and this what was it? Xiongxin? Yeah, for, Xiong, for the Xiong, quote unquote masculine. Yeah, yeah so it's yeah. Uh, I think it's Xiongxing da, which is something like Xing is like you know, Xing, uh, It means kind of like nature, so like your masculine nature. And then he okay. talked. Yeah, and and so I guess what surprised me. Um, on this was it kind of felt like a, a rapid detour um, at this point the book mm. had been, been kind of building up to a more positive working way to kind of get humans to safety and then and then this sort of brings it smack back down to reality with this sort of um, dark interpretation of the world yeah, yeah I think this based on how how male dominated at least character wise the Osician stories tend to be and how how badly the female characters as in as unnumerous as they are tend to come off i do wonder if this is him speaking through fangs because or maybe speaking through fangs with a stronger version of his own views yeah no i definitely agree with that and and i think this sort of ties into the other part where um you know the two main protagonists the captain and fangs are the only two that seems to have um a shared worldview which is mm-hmm. this, the world's a very dark place the captain's never surprised by anything that happens fangs has this sort of respect for him and they both kind of agree on this and i think um you know especially with the when compared to these other ambassadors who were shocked um i think that's also a potential um way for the author to to get across that you know that european progressive culture is very feminine and that chinese culture in his view because it suffered so much is much more skeptical and dark and i think to be honest it it, it is quite obvious in, in the text um mm. so, so so it's quite controversial but that said i get i guess it's quite entertaining because there's so many twists and turns that to be honest, I didn't I didn't expect a lot of the 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 sort of things that he had dropped in the story. Um, 
even though even though I guess if you're a big Leo Zissin fan, you should kind of be used to it by now. Uh, I, yes. <laughs> I, I think I think it's just the the way it's set up it is is very well timed. Yeah. Um bouncing on this point once more, just thinking back to um to Three Body as a reference point. So a character who who kind of quote unquote gets the um, horrible nature of or the fatalistic nature of things, I guess in Three Body that would be the character Luo Ji, who also by by the time he's fully developed is kind of presented as as a badass in the same way that this uh, the captain character is. And I remember also there's a section in the books where Earth has become, I guess, scarcity is solved. Everyone lives a nice life and it's all good. But then the Ossetian decides this makes all the characters not just weaker or softer but he describes them as being more feminine and you know this definitely feels like it's maybe a recurring theme in his views um whether or not that should interfere with how much you like his stories is is, is a it's a completely subjective question but i do think it's um it's something that really jumps out in his stories and as i don't know it, it reminds me as well that have you read um there's an interview slash article thing that he did he he features in it's about him and it's in i think the new york New York Times by Jiayang Fan, their um, China kind of writer expert, where she she's American Chinese. She went to China, she met with him, and they kind of spent a day, I think, in either in New York or Beijing. And she kind of did a little profile of him based on how yeah. he was kind of behaving. And she quizzed him on, it got to the point where he kind of felt confident enough to have a little exchange on some of their differences in values. And he he effectively defended what's going on in Xinjiang, the, the concentration camps. Um, he said it's unpleasant but necessary. And again, it fits the kind of dark, shall we say, views or fatalistic views in his stories. And for some people, that might be a reason to not enjoy him. For me, I think this is, this is the value of translated works from other parts of the world. You expose yourself to views that might be a bit uncomfortable or shocking. So I've I've mentioned that in the podcast before, but it's kind of how I view these things when um, Sushin writes them. Yeah, I wasn't actually, I hadn't been aware of that. I thought maybe you were referring to a sort of previous interview that he did, right. um, I think was also in the States, where he kind of got interrogated about a weak female um, protagonist, which he sort of replied, mm. well, you know, yeah, Wendia was actually the main one, and she was very, very strong. But then he... Ah, yeah. He then went on to say that he never embodies gender into his characters, and it, and he he adds the gender in after the story's been completed. I don't uh, believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, that, that's potentially <laughs> potentially um, not not completely true. I'm not I'm not sure. Um, mm. I guess uh, maybe this is a good time to sort of talk more on the sort of translation part because I do think that. Um, you know, Holger did a, a fantastic job, although he mm. did seem to add um, a little bit of um, his own colour into the sort of translation. So, um, for example, um, the, so the title is is fine. So the title Devourer is, is translated as Tunshu which is kind of yeah, which is kind of like tunshu. It kind of means like to swallow um, or to devour, and then jua is is the sort of a, a, um, adjective of it's that. Like a person figure kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And um, so that was fine. And then so most of the chapters, so like there's eight chapters, and and most of the the titles were fine. There were a few differences. Um, I guess the big one to mention was um, so when we refer to, I think the first chapter is is um, 
it's called the the, the crystal from Eridanus. Um, in the Chinese, they actually refer to it as the constellation of Eridanus because interesting because it is actually a real constellation. So it's a real place. Um, mm. Um, so where they apparently come from. Now, now the emissary fangs, um, I don't think there's an appropriate word to translate fang in Chinese. Um, so they use the word ya, which just means big tooth. <laughs> so yeah. he's um, kind of translated as big tooth. So, so I think the, the, that was fine and, and, and there's no problem there. In fact, I think that's just the author, use, uh, the translator using some 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 imagination there. Um, yeah. But then, okay, so then, then things do get quite interesting, right? So, for example, we'll start with a, a really simple one. Um, you know, he taught in the in the Chinese book, right in the opening part, they talk about um, something being very close, and and they'll say, you know, "Jishujuli uh, saying, you know, even it's quite close. But the author uses uh, much more snappy, saying it's right in his face or right in front of him, which is mm. okay. But then, as we sort of tend towards the the longer sentences the author's adding more and more details so i'm gonna read out um i don't know if i should read out the chinese part so i'll read out the english oh feel free okay so so the chinese you could do, do both <laughs> okay so the chinese part it says um uh and and so the translation of that is essentially saying that this crystal it floated in dark space like a glass sinking in a deep pool. Now, when the author comes in and says, adds a little bit more, so he says, floating through the black void of space, it was hidden by the darkness like a piece of glass sunken in the murky depths. So you can see mm. the author starting to begin to add a little bit more arms and legs. When you say author, do you mean translator? Oh, sorry, the translator, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. The, the trans- okay. I worked out from the context, but just for clarity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Okay, so that's we've gone simple, medium, and then finally we look at a more complex example where, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, the the translation would be should be he um, he used the crystal's distorted starlight to determine its position, um, and 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 it was quickly lost in the sparsely coloured background. But the way that the author adds, it says, is only a slight distortion of starlight provoked by its passage allowed the captain to make its position. Soon it was lost again, disappearing in the space between the stars. So, so it's kind of doubled in size now. Mm. <laughs> so I think what's happened is, is the, the translator has a really good understanding of the sort of hidden meanings between words. And yeah. as the sentences grow in size, um, the, the translator is able to eke out the, the sort of unsaid Chinese um, um, mm insinuations into english and so i think he's done a a sort of a really really good uh a good job of that Mm -hmm. fantastic um yeah it's 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 an interesting thing that you mentioned the the insinuations because i'd obviously i'd heard before one thing a translator a really good translator does is get the flavor as well as the meaning across but and i knew that in china is sorry the chinese language is in general a little bit more vague or as you say has insinuations but i hadn't put together the idea that a really good translator teases out the insinuations because english isn't as insinuative or if, if that's a word as mandarin so that's an interesting uh, point so you've, you've mentioned the translation of the story's title and fang's name um there's a thing i did on the show a couple of times forgot about a long time and i'm trying to bring back uh, word of the day 
Uh, but I thought in honor of Fangs, maybe we could do two, two words of the day that you could teach uh, people like me who have uh, gaps in their vocabulary. Could you teach us the Mandarin uh, for lizard and for dinosaur? Okay, so so <laughs> um, the dinosaur one is the, is the nice and easiest to say. So that's um, uh, Quinlong. So let's see if you Quinlong. Can... Yeah, and, and so it's quite interesting because in the actual first book it gets mixed up because the second mm. part the second part of the word long means uh, dragon. And yep. so when you mix them together, Kung Long, um, it actually means dinosaur. And so um yeah, the the the, the Oh, is it Kong Kong Long, not Kun Long? Oh yeah, sorry. It's it's Kong Long. Yeah. Kong um, Long, okay. Yeah. And um if you if you use it together, it means dinosaur. But if you take mm -hmm. out the first part of the word, it means um, it means dragon. So so in the book, it sometimes gets confused in the first book if you, if you sort of translate it automatically, um, which is why mm. we we'll have to wait till twenty twenty to get the the full proper translation done. Now. Right. For uh, for lizard, I guess there's a couple of ways you could say. Uh, the easiest one would be xi uh, yi. Um, xi yi. Okay. Yeah, and and so so yeah, essentially, lizard. Um, right. But but yeah, so kong long and xi uh, yi. Um, kong long xi yi. Okay. Yeah, uh, for dinosaur and uh, lizard. Um, cool. Yeah. Fantastic. I I quite enjoy having these wee bits, although. It's hard to know how many listeners don't need help with Chinese. Uh, I certainly do, though, so at least it benefits me. Um, we've we've talked a little bit already about the tone slash quality of the translation, uh, and you've mentioned the translators uh, kind of teasing out of the language. How about like direct interventions, things that have been modified a little bit, maybe for the benefit of uh, Western readers? Is is there anything here that's changed significantly? None, none that I could find. Um, there's a, a few small things. Again, it's just like you, you know. So <laughs> I guess the closest I can find is where um, you know we in the beginning they talk about uh, this sort of uh, Asian cool as a captain holding his Asian cool, but actually mm -hmm. um, it's translated as you know uh, a sort of Langjin the Dongfangren, which is much more like the the cool. Uh, Easterner rather than mm. um, using the direct translation, but it's all that sort of stuff. It's not the the the, the, the translator's not taking any liberties. There's, um, yeah, there's there's very little in it. But but I guess one of the biggest liberties I've seen would be in in Liu Cixin's work would be actually in um the Dark Forest where a completely big plot is missing. Which is uh, I do really think that's worth talking about in the English mm. in the English version. Um, for those uh, spoiler alert, apologies, but um, in the English version of that book, they they don't they, when they're talking about the ways that they can defend against the Trisolans, they don't mention ball lightning, and in the Chinese part, they, they talk a bit about how they would use ball lightning and these. Uh, quantum shadows to attack the trisolans so it's actually a big chunk that's that's um kind of just gone yeah just gone and it could be because ball lightning was released formally um only last or this year i think 
But in the Devourer, I think I think Holger's really done well. I, if if anything, I would say Holger's not been a person to maintain the flavour which other translators does. I think what Holger does much more is um, add uh, a hidden meaning. So rather than mm. rather than twist something completely to 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 hold the flavour, he he's mostly staying true to the the genre. But but uh, so to, true to the context, but adding in a little bit that is still accurate as part of the as part of the the, the, the translation. That is really interesting thing to know. Um, so I have no segue for this. Just next question. Um, it's really handy to have uh, a guest who's got some knowledge of physics, and this is a hard sci-fi story after all. So there is some expectation that it will adhere to real science or scientific principles. Um, so how do you feel about the the realism or the scientific rigor of the story? Because like my my take is the physics it seems legit to me, although I never did physics at school, just did um, uh, biology and chemistry, but then only up to uh, standard grade for chemistry and higher for biology. And there's also the fact that there are big, silly, giant, talking lizard dinosaurs, and there's a holographic manga girl, uh, but mixed in with what appeared to me to be real science and stuff. So just just to restate the question, how do you feel about the realism slash scientific rigor in, in this story? I think I think in general, Lil Zixin really does pay homage to good science and, and in this it's kind of no difference there are a couple there's actually if anything there's a couple of plot gaps rather than science gaps um mm. but so so for example the science is is spot on there's a few parts where um he's test so so what the position does is he tests science concepts and then rebakes them into future books so for example in this one where the devourer is, essentially looks like a giant tire and when it mm. uh, goes over a planet it looks like a, a football in a tire and um, he talks about this idea of the low gravity between the outer shell and the earth allowing them to do mining and, and strip and you know and pillage and plunder earth really easily he then reuses mm. that same concept again in the mountain and other story or, uh, other stories using this idea of a gravity differential um also in the devourer he talks about things such as uh, um you know the velocity so he talks about velocity momentum and angular momentum um all in the right context um so it's very hard for me to find any major uh issues in in the science i mean that's not to say that they're not there but um at face value I, what what he's kind of done as well is he's restricted the the physics to pretty much present day um when he sort of describes the um these uh, uh the dinosaur species as being very close to human-like technology so no super tech and so it's mm. all it's all just uh propulsion uh you know um uh, delta v and things like that so so it's all done really well um the other bit i guess you know the, the, there's a little bit potentially that could be a, a that could that could be a slip up where uh, Lord talks about this um, dust cloud obscuring their path in the Milky Way and them having to jump from mm. one arm to the other, but it's not enough to really pick at. Um, in general, and I, it's it's really captivating to read that bit as well. I love the idea of being trapped in a small pocket of a galaxy. That's one of my favorite bits of the story. So if it's not scientifically perfect, a casual reader like me. It probably works even more for a casual reader like me. That liberty enhanced the story for me. 
Yeah, exactly. And um, so I, I think really it was it was really well done. And and, and the, the part I really liked was this uh, idea of layered uh, nuclear fusion bombs on the moon <laughs> and using that to steer the moon because it, it, it's it's kind of like again humans acting within their technological limitations they can't uh you know they can't steer it but again this will ring similarities for those who have uh, watched the wandering earth or read the wandering earth so so you can see that yeah. these scientific concepts get um reused and i think that's a sign of a good uh, a good author where he's essentially testing um principles and if if they come out well and there's not much pushback he can then rebake them in a different way um and i think that's what he's done done here hey well said it, it reminds me so i think as as i said in uh oh i've not i've not published it yet but the last call i did uh, for an interview for the show i was talking about how i'm, a, I'm just a casual sci-fi reader um it's not something i really specialize in so one of the uh Certainly not a foundational sci-fi read I did, but a sci-fi book, a few sci-fi books I did read were some of the Halo video game novelizations, which have uh, things yes. in them the games don't. Have you read any of those? Eric Nyland, I believe. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. They were good, um, but they're like a, a key thing that's not in the games was when the humans are trying to fight uh, in, they're in, there's big space battles uh, between the human ships and the alien ships. And one of the humans go to weapons uh, attacks it's just firing nuclear bombs at the aliens <laughs> in space which Seems i suppose so. makes sense yeah yeah makes sense but me as a reader i was like what we'd, <laughs> we'd still been using nuclear bombs but you know why not it's it's vulgar it works i i, I think yeah i think that's a great note to to capture that on um it's vulgar mm. it works and, and actually that's a it is a really well piece of written science fiction um it won the new york mm. bestseller so the uh I think the first two Halo uh, books won the New York bestseller, so so mm-hmm. they they did really well. Um, also, some shout outs. I think that's Tor as well, right? So I think the the publishers Tor and they they've uh, been quite consistent with that kind of sci-fi. Um, mm. But yeah, so I I think I think you know for me personally, having the right amount of physics and 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 uh, sci-fi makes all the difference. Um, I think that's what attracted me heavily to Lord Zushin, um, is that he does spend time to get it right. And one of the things that's quite surprising is, is Lord Zushin is not a, a one-trick pony. So it's not just physics. No. I mean, he does it across biology and informatics. And um, in general, I think... I think that's one of the sort of key defining traits. If you read a lot of Western sci-fi today... Um, some of the areas will be good in, 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 in the science aspects, but, but loose in others. Whereas I think, mm. I think like, for example, The Devourer and, and other books try to keep quite consistent um, across the board. Um, so, yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. For me, if I had to rank the science in this book, I'd probably give it 8 out of 10. Right. There you go. 8 out of 10. And is that for just Devourer or for the whole Wandering Earth book? Well, I would say for the Devour BA out of ten, for the whole Wandering Earth, I'd probably need to sit down. I think the Wandering Earth got um, because it was so popular; it's been slated quite heavily. So a lot of um, mm. critics have come on and talked about the idea of pushing a planet really hard. <laughs> um, but in the yeah. Devour, I think, I think it, it doesn't help that the film adaptation was a bit lackluster. It, yeah. Have you seen it, the film of The Wandering Earth? Yeah. I, I have, Not yeah. Not the best. <laughs> um, I, I, I thought it was brilliant, really enjoyable, but the, the science um, mm. 
I, I'm, I think Liu Zixin didn't have much influence on that one. Um, and he mm. said he was happy for them yep. to sort of go with it. Yeah, um, agreed. Um, I, I think if I if I sat down and watched it with lower expectations, I might get something out of it. But I uh, I foolishly had high expectations. Um, though I, I know that there's an animation of Three Body on the way. Have you have you seen anything about that? Yeah, so I, I saw the trailer for it. It looks really, really good. Um, there's also, I also for those who are fans, there's a, a thing called My Three Body, um, and it's essentially the entire show, uh, the entire novel scripted in Minecraft, which sounds quite... Oh my god. <laughs> it sounds quite shocking, but it's actually fantastic. Um, the first season, as you'd expect, blocky, but the second season, it's almost becoming more just like, uh, you know, uh, average animation and um, the acting and there's a lot of investment put into it so there's a whole studio behind it and they're working on, on the third part and, and so they're doing each season based upon the main character so I think you know, middle season was uh, Luo Zi and the third season's Zhang Beihai so I mean one of the <sighs> things one of the things that is really important to mention is is this is actually we are witnessing the sort of rebirth of, of major sci-fi mainstream sci-fi in china and i think mm. Liu Cixing is playing no small part the the wandering earth movie has been uh, uh coined in china as opening the door to sci-fi unfortunately there was just a new movie recently released called uh shanghai fortress which they some of the critics are claiming have just closed the door to sci-fi so <laughs> we will it mm. remains it remains to be seen but but i think in general the appetite for science fiction in china is it's actually increasing heavily and um if you contrast that with western interpretation of sci-fi you see that there is a a big difference in the mainstream being that chinese mainstream sci-fi holds much more positive outlooks and connotations so for example if you take the end of um the wandering earth movie it's much more looking into the future and you know the the, the spring festival the the western sci-fi yeah. seems to be much more on a dark uh We've been hooked of, to dystopias for a very long time yeah yeah and i think it's about 2000 post-apocalypses as well Right, exactly. You know, with everything from, I guess, The Walking Dead to some sort of more brutal. Um, I think you could go as far back as like um, 28 Days Later. It's a long time ago now. Right, right. And I, I think the, the, the major turning point for me was 2006 or 2007. Oh, sorry, 2005 even with Battlestar Galactica. Because that was the All first. Right. Um, it was the first. So that film style um, encouraged. Um, a lot of our following series is to copy this idea of um, um, you know kind of wonky camera style filming and um, ah, right. okay. and so it brought out this idea of you know realism and I think what mm. had happened was this is just my interpretation only but if you look at sci-fi in the 90s in, in, in the west it was sort of Star Trek forward looking Stargate um, mm. family-esque shows and then I think yep. what had happened was people had kind of got bored and didn't find much realism in it. And then sort of mm. Battlestar Galactica was one of the first to kind of inject a mainstream appetite for dark and realism. And I think we're still riding that wave of... Where it's now become sort of hyper-dark, whereas China's much more earlier on in their uh, sci-fi journey. So things are still much more mm. positive and forward-looking. And uh, um, so I, I'm kind of... That's yeah. what I, I think the censorship <laughs> bureau. 
The censorship bureaus got to help with that, though. Enforced positivity. Well, yeah, I mean, potentially, I, I, I don't know. Maybe that that might be something. Um, but for me, I guess that's a it's a highly positive thing because I kind of miss that. <laughs> I kind of mi- I kind of miss yeah. that um, in part of of sci-fi being able to sort of sit and and relax to a more I guess a more positive, straightforward plot. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think I think it remains to be seen because as we see in Little Decision, um, is definitely a dark horse, and and written literature doesn't seem to follow um, mainstream. Hmm, that is true. Um, remembering what you said about Minecraft, I, I can I can link this back to Dundee. So I have a pal who um, he went to Aberty uh, uh, Uni and did the one of the games type courses and is working in a wee Dundonian company. Where, as far as I'm aware, they just make content for like relate using Minecraft or related to Minecraft. So they're not making the apps that are going viral, but they're doing something a little bit like this three body thing, just making original content out of a platform that already exists for in this case a younger audience but it's just amazing the world we live in that these things are happening all corners of the world um but taking things a little bit back to to dundee and to scotland i'm going to ask you some personal or yeah some personal questions first one is when did you first really connect with it with sci-fi well that's a that's a really good question um it's actually quite hard i guess potentially Mm. it's Oh, I mean, sci-fi has always been a big part of my life, um, probably since I was about 10 or 9. Um, I, I, the very first Stargate movie, 1994. Um, as, okay. a, as a young child, I was very into sort of Egyptian and Roman mythology. Um, so I'd, mm. I, I was a bit of a geek, so I'd stick around to libraries when I was like 7 or 8 and try to read kind of short stories short Greek, uh, Roman and Egyptian stories. And then the sort of Stargate came out and uh, did something I didn't expect, which was try to mix mythology and, and, and science fiction. And that kind of gripped mm. me. And then the TV show came out at the time when I was sort of like, I guess, 12, 13, 14, and looking for something a little bit more <laughs> action. And um, mm. I, I really enjoyed it because it, it kind of brought out this idea that, um, you know, th- th- it was a stark detour from Star Trek where most of the technology was 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 set in the modern day so that i kind of that was my realism hit i guess before the, the, the mm. sort of mainstream and and so i did a lot of reading of, of sci-fi when i was younger as well so um some of the classics and um even jules verne and uh, war of the worlds um mm. pulled me in um so yeah i guess I, I've been in it as, as long as I can remember. And um, one of the things I, I should really say for all of the listeners who are still with us is, is really get into Chinese sci-fi because I think Ken Liu mentions this best where, you know, sci-fi is just sci-fi. And there is, yes. def- there is definitely, you know, you can definitely look, if you look hard enough, you'll find connections with of nations or backgrounds but sci-fi is just sci-fi and if you get into chinese mm. sci-fi you essentially double the amount of available material for you um and and i do find it's quite refreshing to sort of get into something where you know you you may it, it sometimes it's, it feels a little bit like rolling the dice because you may read a chinese science fiction book and find it's exactly the same as a book you may have read previously in, in the West, but then sometimes it's that exact thing that you're looking for, this unique, different, um, mm. um, standalone uh, story with lots of ideas. And and But I think that's the same with all sci-fi. So, so, so personally, you know, I, I think one of the main themes of this 
obviously is, is Chinese science fiction. But personally, I, I, I couldn't recommend it enough because essentially if you, if you read Western sci-fi just now and, and you do keep up with it, then you, you, you essentially are running you've dry. You've poured into yourself off, yeah. Yeah, you're running dry on the classics, right? So if you've read all the classics, you kind of feel like, well, you read them, so, so there's not much left. But then in China, you've essentially got you know, decades of, of potential classics to read into. Mm, yeah, uh, I know that... So a lot of the stuff that isn't three body that we have now got is from younger uh, sci-fi writers like Xia Jia and Chen Xiaofan. But um, a thing I found uh, when I was sniffing around for my dissertation was another one, an author who's of an age with Liu Cixin, uh, Wang Jin Kang. There's an English translation of his book Pathological um, that's published by Amazon Crossing. And um, Jeremy Tiang, a very good translator, is the, the guy who translated it. So if, if if you I have not read this book, but if you guys are interested in these older Chinese sci-fi writers, someone who's of an age with Liu Cixin, that's that's a good go-to for English translation. And if you're interested in the younger ones, definitely Invisible Planets and Broken Stars would be a great place to start. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, Invisible Planet was definitely a big one for me, and um, um, I think there's a great story there by Hao Jingfan, um, Folding Beijing. Folding Beijing. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's a, a classic, and and I think you're right. So so a lot of these uh, um, up and coming uh, writers seem to be in their early thirties, late twenties. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is great because it, it kind of reflects, you know, this new age of, of sci-fi. But again, from what I'm reading, a lot of it does seem to be quite uh, fresh. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I get, I guess, re- really, you know, you've, if you look at it from a different angle, which is China's a very big uh, developing country or develop with a much greater population than Europe and America combined, with mm-hmm. a strong, um, a strong entertainment industry. So it's highly mm. likely that the next 10 or 15 years will produce, you know, we, we, the people talked about um, Liu Zixin as the, as the next Asimov, right? Or the Asimov of Asia. But I think given the size of China, you, you can only expect to get more of that, such as like the next Ian Banks and, and so on. So I think, mm. I think this is, if any endorsement, that would be the one which is you essentially, there's a whole new repertoire of, of science fiction that I think will continue to roll out and, and eventually will grip the West. You know, we, we talk about this, uh, I liked your analogy earlier of um, Chinese, uh, Chinese science fiction fans being as stars in the universe. Um, there's lots of us, but we're spread out thinly. Right, but I think that will eventually become more and more mainstream. Um, you know, some of these Chinese science fiction shows are are rolling out on Netflix, and um, these books mm. are se- these books are selling in Waterstones. So um, as long as they continue to sell, there appears to be a Western appetite for for this. Yep, I, it's that's an optimistic take, but I think you've you're definitely got a point there. Um, that leads to my next question: Do you know what the first little piece of Chinese sci-fi you read was? Um, believe it or not, it was the Devourer. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's kind of why I guess we picked this one. So this is the... I, I remember reading this um, a, a, quite a few years back uh, when I was uh, trying to improve my Chinese. Um, mm. And um, at the time, I, I can't remember how I came across the book. I think I think one of my friends had, had sent me a, a copy um, and I was reading through it and translating it on the fly in Google. And uh, even back then, even, you know, 
eight or nine years ago, Google Translate was still really, really good. And mm. um, I just remember as I was making it past each part, I was coming on to more and more shocking revelations. So, so for, for, for me, this part does hold a sort of special place in my heart. And then I think the second one after that, um, you know, uh, the second major one I can remember was definitely the three-body problem. Quite sad, I know. Uh, nothing nothing super unique from that. But um, yeah. Well, nothing, th- nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, no, the... the, the I, I, I also strongly recommend for anybody learning Chinese, um, pick a short story and just work your way through the translation. I think that's one of the best ways to engross yourself and, and get you get yourself into the sort of uh, nitty gritty of, of sort of Chinese grammar and, and um, metaphors. Mm, thanks for the tip. So you mentioned before you've got a YouTube account uh, with some China or Chinese language related content. Do you want to Briefly tell us what that is, and then as a follow-up, uh, have you got any plans to discuss or put Chinese re- sci-fi-related uh, content or discussion on that account? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, thanks for letting me plug, plug my, my video. So no, you can, please do. <laughs> you, it, it, you can find me, so if you just look for um, Merchie85 on YouTube, um, and, and you should Merchie be spell to... I-E, right? Yeah, so that, that's right. So M-U-R... C-H-I-E 85 you, you should be able to find me um, and now we know how old you are yeah I know that's, that's quite <laughs> quite depressing but yeah um, there you go and um, uh, but you could also if, if you if you still don't find me there if you just look for search for build your own AI in four minutes um, mine's is the first or second search be it Google YouTube Baidu any of that you should find me nice and um, so, yeah, my my uh, channel is a mixture of um, of uh, AI uh, DevOps and uh, techie stuff that I've built. But it's also um, got a Chinese uh, swim lane. So if you go in there, you'll see a Chinese swim lane where I talk about um, different uh, AI and technology things in in Mandarin Chinese. And um, yeah, so so the next part is to have a swim lane where I sort of comment on. Uh, Chinese fiction from the point of view of a Westerner and so yeah if you I guess the next couple of months I'll start to put up videos and um, uh, I guess one of the first things I'm looking at sort of talking about would be would be the mountain because I think I think that's Mm. quite shocking for a lot of westerners because it's a it, it's a very it's it, it's very very scientific <laughs> so so that's why i liked it so much merch 85 um or build your own ai in four minutes and you'll find me what was that word you were saying was it swim lane yeah so a youtube swim lane is the if you think of like your video reel and you can split your youtube channel into into swim lane. Uh, okay cool it's a wee bit like a publisher in their imprints, um, little subcategories, brands within the brand. Um, sorry, uh, curiosity satisfied. So we plugged <laughs> your we plugged your YouTube. Is there anything else you want to plug uh, before we bid you farewell? No, no, that's I guess that's it. Um, uh, just really to say thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure, and right. uh, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing more of your of of, of your interviews and hopefully uh, pop on one later on in the year next year. Yeah. Well, as I said to um, the last guest, you're welcome back anytime, but obviously not the next episode. That would be weird. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but but no, um, thanks for having me on. I guess yeah. for, for all of those listening, please give Devourer a go. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even though I don't think we've I don't think we've boiled um, everything. There's quite a few 
no. twists and turns in it, so it's definitely worth a go. Yep, and that's in the Wandering Earth uh, collection of short stories published by Head of Zeus everywhere except North America. In North America, it's Tor. And that uh, upcoming title, Ants and Dinosaurs, that's also by Tor and Head of Zeus. And that's uh, available for pre-order now. I, I pre-ordered it when I was doing my Christmas shopping uh, for everyone else, but got myself that. But yeah, uh, I think we've we've um, we've done our corporate masters the favour that they demanded. So it's probably time to say bye bye. Uh, yeah. So uh, thanks again for having me on, and then um, uh, catch you next time. Well, thank you again to Adam McMurchie for being on the show. That was a fantastic chat, and I think it was great that for the important milestone of covering Liu Cixin, we got a real fan of Chinese sci-fi and fan of science as well. Hard and hard science, hard sci-fi. That's I think that's a perfect guest. As I've said before, um, we're not exclusively looking for authors, translators, academics, people who enjoy the. Uh, you have to be. I think the key criterion to be a guest is to enjoy the stuff we read that's it so if you'd love to be on the show then i'd love to have you on the show just zap me a message or uh, through uh, i guess instagram comments or dms that's at church of Fick. twitter it's at angus likes words what else can i plug the, there's a the facebook group the facebook um page just stick the name of the podcast in the search bar in facebook that should do it and yes the most important thing you can do it's word of mouth, just telling people who might like the show about the show. So who could you tell this time? Obviously, of course, tell your dog, but also tell the massive dinosaur uh, emissary of the alien race that has entered the solar system and is coming to your planet to eat you. Tell that giant dinosaur lizard, because they might like the show. On that note, Zaijian. Shall